Peace and peace, loved ones. I'm praying everybody is blessed out there, wherever you may be in the entire multiverse. I'm happy to introduce this podcast. It's a conversation I had with Kabir Helminski. Sheikh Kabir is a sheikh within the Mevlevi order. That's the order that was founded by Mawlana Jalaluddin Rumi. The Mevlevis are those who follow Mevlana. Mevlana means our master, Mawlana. And as everybody knows, Rumi is much beloved. He's the number one selling poet in America, more than Shakespeare and Milton. Um, and you see him on your memes and in your Facebook feed and everybody posting about him. But Sheikh Kabir is someone who has walked the path of Rumi for many decades and who has sat with the Mevlevi sheikhs. Uh, Suleiman Dede is a Mevlevi sheikh that came, I believe, in the 70s to America, the first one, and he brought that way. And Sheikh Kabir studied with him for many years and eventually became a sheikh in the order in his own right. And him and his wife, Camille uh, Helminski, have been doing amazing pioneering work um, in Sufism in the Western context, publishing many books, translating poetry, um, doing retreats. They have something called the Threshold Society that they've been doing it through and really just, you know, interpreting, doing the work of interpreting Rumi and Sufism for a Western context, being that we're talking about a ancient tradition uh, from a very different cultural context they have really been pioneering this work of how do we distill and translate the meanings and the profound wisdom and depth and psychology of this tradition for a Western context. So I've benefited from them for a long time and read their works. And unlike some of the other popular versions of Rumi, you, you know when you read their works, their translations of Rumi, that you are getting something that is true to the original because they know it. I mean, there's so much symbolism and so much about Rumi that if you're not actually walking the path, you may not um, understand what he's referencing. So they did a great, they have done a great job for many years. Um, so this was great because I met them multiple times, but this was the first time I got to really sit and spend time in their home and meet with their their uh, community. Um Alhamdulillah, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. I'm honored to take place in their annual Bay Area retreat, which they have coming up on February 24th, Threshold Society. It's about Sufi chivalry. So they've asked me to, to perform and to present something. So I'll put the link to their Threshold Society um, on the SoundCloud page so you can check it out further. Um, so thank you for everybody that supports this new year, 2017. Welcome to this beautiful new moment. Alhamdulillah, the podcast is 14 months old, something like that. So we're happy that it still exists and it's still going. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. Um, my intention in the new year is to try to do it a little bit more frequently. We've been consistent with doing it once a month, but I would like to do it a little bit more than that, if possible. So your continued support makes that a reality. Um, you can continue to support the podcast on Patreon. Uh, the link is on our SoundCloud. And Patreon is a site which allows you to 
support monthly with uh, automatic withdrawal, you know, $1, $5, $1 million, um, anything in between, whatever you can give, it's all love and it's much supported. You know, that allows us to pay the uh, people that produce the podcast, edit it, and um, hopefully allow us to put more time into it and travel to meet these good people and all that. So, alhamdulillah, if it connects with you and you enjoy it, then we do it for you, you know. And the intention behind this has always been to amplify and magnify the love and the light, which is out there. So much of it is out there, but so much of the darkness is what tends to get magnified. So these mediums allow us to connect with each other and to spread um, the positivity and magnify it. Insha'Allah, bi'idhnillah ta'ala, that's the goal. So without further ado, I give you path and present, Kabir Helminski. One love. So you've been basically for decades on the path of Mavlana Rumi. Alhamdulillah, what a blessed path. And as with many things, when things become popular, um, they tend to also become sometimes divorced from their source or a bit more superficial. So like yoga becomes popular, but for most people, it just becomes just stretching, you know, and they lose kind of the whole. And even just things like small batch, single origin coffee is the best. Whenever a company gets too big, it's hard to keep that quality, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's kind of this irony when things become popular, maybe something can be lost. But because Rumi is the number one selling poet in America and so beloved, um, it can obscure the fact that perhaps for a lot of people, even though Rumi memes and Rumi posts and Rumi quotes are everywhere, maybe the essence of his way is not always understood. So I guess I would just open with the fact that you've been for decades diving deep into the ocean of Rumi. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you distill his message and the essence of it? <clears throat> well, his message is the same on every page you will ever read mm-hmm. by him. Every page of his Mesnevi, for instance, or every page of his as Devon is saying the same thing. He was drunk and sober. Mm. He was drunk uh, with the beauty and generosity of God. And he wanted us to know that. And he had a sobriety greater than his intoxication. Mm. So he wasn't just an ecstatic. He was an ecstatic who matured. And he's significant for for so many reasons, but one is that he's truly a faithful follower of the Mohammedi way. Um, He's always, uh, you might say, riffing on uh, the essential insights and revelations of the Quran. And, of course, uh, 
of the most beautiful hadith as well. So he is organically related to this source. But what's interesting is what he does with it, the creativity with which he unfolds it. And even in the field of Sufism, it's possible to be very sort of doctrinaire, cut and dried. Um, You know, elaborating concepts and terminology uh, in a very programmatic way. What we get with Rumi is something that's so alive, so creative. It's like life itself. And yet, it's, it's, uh, there are stories, there are sublime prayers, there are exquisite poems, and there are even uh, vulgar jokes, mm-hmm. all of which serve a purpose. The purpose is always one. This is the workshop of unity. And if you walked into the workshop of a, a shoemaker and you found something on the floor, and you, like a piece of metal, you would know that it had something to do with making shoes. Mm. Well, everything in Rumi's Mesnevi is evidence of God's beauty, intelligence, generosity, all of which is subsumed under God's oneness. And there's nothing in this life that is untouched by that mercy. There is no detail in any human life that doesn't in some way reveal that mercy. So let people take what they want from it. Uh, I'm I'm not so bothered by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because in general, yes, it, it is possible to possibly cheap in Rumi, certainly, and it's probably even possible to violate Rumi in some cases, but that's relatively rare. I think this culture is so in need of healing, and Rumi, if he provides a healing balm for (coughs) wounded hearts, better yet, if he awakens hearts out of their numbness, then he's serving God's purpose. But I think the beauty, the the miracle of Rumi is that he shows um, an Islam that is so vibrant and creative. And he, in his own temperament, in the way he lived, in the way he related to... um, to certain more rigid interpretations of Islam is very, very instructive for us. There's no doubt that his practice was an Islamic practice. Um, There's no doubt that he fasted and did night vigil. He did much beyond the uh, basic requirements. And, of course, he was, uh, all life long, he was uh, a faqih, of sorts. Mm-hmm. The only thing he actually ever accepted money for, as far as I know, was giving fetwas. Mm. Okay? But what fetwas mm. <laughs> he gave. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, um, a beautiful example in the spirit of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, mm. 
who, who's, whose sunnah is so misunderstood today. Mm-hmm. People, you know, harp on, you've got to follow the Prophet's sunnah, and they reduce it to some behavioral, uh, rigid patterns that somehow they have deduced from maybe God knows what, well, from, from certain hadith which may or may not be true. <clears throat> but what really is the sunnah of the Prophet? I would say the sunnah of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is flexibility and preference for the essential meaning of things over outer forms. Mm. And if you look at how he solved people's problems, uh, these were the principles he used. He was not, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, he was not uh, rigid. Uh, you know, focusing on picayune details of outer things, he was always trying to get to the heart and to the meaning of what it means to be a friend of God, what it means to be close to God, and also what it means to be sincere. So, let's follow his sunnah in sincerity. Mm. That's the most important thing. And Methlana, Jalaluddin Rumi is a beautiful example of that because he was not only the Shakespeare of mystics, the Shakespeare of Muslims. Uh, <clears throat> he was he was he was himself the message that he spoke about. There was no discrepancy. We have wonderful, great beings in our own American culture who we who deserve our utmost respect. You know, we could say uh, um, Walt Whitman, mm. Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm-hmm. Thoreau. Unfortunately, most of them were in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> they they uh, left us beautiful words. Mm-hmm. But Mithlana... And, and they were also deeply inspired by Persian Sufi poetry. They were. Yeah, they drank at that fountain, mm-hmm. for sure. But Rumi was the message. Mm. He lived it. Mm. Uh, once a uh, <clears throat> a priest came from Constantinople, I think, came all the way to Konya to meet Rumi, and um, was guided to him. And, and when he saw Rumi, he fell to the ground and kissed his feet, and stood up. And the next thing he knew, Rumi had fallen to his feet mm. and was kissing the priest's feet, mm. not once again, and again, and again, and again, until finally the priest couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> he just, it like totally must have melted him, mm. must have just obliterated him. And he said, stop, how, you know, how can you do that to, to somebody like me? And you know what Rumi's response was? Mm. He said, God in his majesty has been so generous to me what kind of person would I be if I didn't express it Hmm. so Rumi's path is uh, in truth you could say one might say it's followed by very few people in its authentic or traditional form who am I to say what's authentic or not but in its traditional disciplines. Um, 
but there are lovers of Rumi all over the world who go very, very deep mm. in every culture, in every Sufi tariqa. Yeah. They're there. I once heard uh, Sheikh uh, Musafir Effendi mm. of the Jarahis mm. in Istanbul, a very big Sheikh, said that from his experience, every dervish on the path, no matter what their lineage, no matter what the tariqa, comes to a stage where the study of the Mesnevi becomes imperative for them. So he doesn't belong just to one order. Yeah, and you see that in the history of Turkey and the Ottoman Empire, like there was all types of sheikhs of different orders <coughs> commenting, writing big commentaries on the Mesnevi, yes. right? It was. But if we were to look at... You know, I've often thought about this, and you mentioned something similar in your own journey. If Rumi is the number one selling poet in America, that means, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are reading him. But if you go to the average local mosque seeking out an experience which mirrors that awakening, that opening that you get through his writings. And I exactly what you said, because I remember the first time I read Rumi and I was coming as a songwriter and a, and a poet. but And so I loved Rumi, but it wasn't because he's just great with words. It's that there's clearly something behind the words, and they seem to just be overflowing from his state. And that's what I wanted to know more about. Like, what is, what is he experiencing? Yes. But unfortunately, um, a lot of our you know, mosques or communities don't necessarily reflect the vast ocean of love and compassion and non-judgment, which is so clear all throughout Rumi, and the kind of deep understanding of of the human being's journey and the emphasis on experiential knowledge of God and love of God. Um, But I know you're someone who has met and studied and apprenticed with the Mevlevi Sheikh, Rumi's order, and then yourself became a representative, a Sheikh of that order. So I was hoping maybe you could speak just a bit about the order itself and what are its principles and what is, are its basis in your experience and your journey on the path and studying and teaching mm-hmm. in, that, in that path. <coughs> well, thank you for asking that. I had been a seeker for years and had met masters of awareness, masters of power, um, masters of knowledge. But when I met a master of love in the form of Ahmed Levi Sheikh, whose name was Suleiman Dede, everything changed. It was a very different experience. And <clears throat> It was an experience of a melting kind of love, which in Persian they call eshk. In Turkish they call it ashk. Mm. And the Mevlevis greet each other uh, with the phrase ashk olsen, may it be love. And then there's a response to that ashk and jamalan olsen, may it be love and beauty, Mm. is what's returned. So love and beauty are at the heart of the Mevlevi way. Not just aesthetic beauty, but divine beauty, which can be reflected as 
human beauty when a soul um, develops and is cooked in that uh, <coughs> in Allah's kitchen, in Medlana's kitchen. Um, so I encountered a beautiful milieu uh, was so refined, not in uh, my Murshid's home was was simple. It was a uh, you know mud walled two story building, probably from the nineteenth century, and he grew rose bushes in old sort of five gallon olive oil tins. But the refinement was in the human uh, relationships, the adab. And in the vibration of love that was there. And that was really what we received from him. And what we have attempted to, to um, live up to and share here in, well, here in America and elsewhere. <clears throat> At this, eventually we learned uh, more about the Holy Quran and the Hadith and other great voices of Sufism. Eventually, too, we deepened in our understanding of Rumi's own teachings through his Mesnavi. But at the heart of it was a dignity and human affection um, that we encountered in the people we met and we still encounter in the family of Mevlana and in virtually everybody who represents the tradition. There is um, such a high development of spiritual courtesy. Mm. And <clears throat> on the one hand, it's an outer expression. On the other hand, it induces a kind of humility and uh, affection. I would say that yeah, if I speak about the Mithlevi order, I'm going to speak about my ideal of it, okay? Which I realize we may not be realizing. <clears throat> but for instance, when you come into a real Mithlevi derga, or tekya, in other words, the Sufi lodge of the Mithlevi, there is an adab, there is spiritual courtesy based in humility, modesty, service, <coughs> refinement of manners. Um, and a sense of relationship, a cultivated sense of relationship, both with the sheikh and among the dervishes themselves. Um, so it's a very relational spirituality. And everything in the Mevlevi Lodge is proportioned, you might say, is patterned to maximize affection. No one ever told me this. This is not a rule I ever saw written down. It's something I came to realize gradually. That the reasons for Adab is that it makes everything else possible and lifts the energy, lifts everyone that, <clears throat> that um, gets imbued with this adab and this <clears throat> remembrance. 
lifts us all up and creates an environment in which spiritual love becomes possible. And what I mean by spiritual love is different from emotional love or desire. Most forms of love, including romantic love, are based on the idea you love something lovable, and in most cases you want to possess that lovable one. Mm -hmm. But Rumi says the greatest love is love with no object. When you have been cooked in that love, like the chickpeas and the chickpea soup, uh, you become flavorful. You, and you attain that state where you simply are love, and to one degree or another. And hopefully everyone who uh, <coughs> practices on Rumi's way attains this to some extent. Love with no object. You just are love. You're not, you're not <clears throat> looking for something to satisfy your desire. A person, a situation. You radiate love because you have been uh, <clears throat> gone deep enough into the mm. core of your own being, mm. which is love. So love with no object is the highest, highest state. Now, of course, along with this, is continual worship of Allah, breath by breath. And in the beautiful forms that have been given to us, which help to mediate uh, the heavenly energies, you know, there's certain things that we only experience in the company of others and in the company of ritual and ceremony. That's also been my experience. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> So we're grateful for those ceremonies and, and rituals and the bonds, the human bonds within them. So it begins to create a culture. There is a Mevlevi culture and there is a Sufi culture. I'm not making it something exclusive to Mevlevis, but the Mevlevis have developed it beautifully and, uh, and lived it. I've seen it and we attempt to live it here, wherever we are. Someone put it beautifully. I've, I've had the blessing of traveling to Konya now, I believe, three or four times. Mm -hmm. And most recently during Ramadan, I spent three weeks there, longest time. That was amazing. Um, and if you're at the, you know, site, these Mevlevi Khanes, these lodges of the Mevlevis, they're such beautiful places, and, and I really was thinking deeply, and, you know, traditionally, you had to live there for, what is it, like three years or something? A thousand and one days. A thousand and one days. And, you know, it was expected in a traditional Islamic society that you would already have kind of memorized Quran and studied your basic Islamic studies, so this is kind of like university, you could say. Mm -hmm. And... In addition to advancing your textual studies, it was really very much a kind of like liberal arts spiritual institution because you were studying music, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but each dervish was like studied a specific instrument, whether it was the ney, the reed flute, the rabab, or these are some art form, not necessarily an instrument, mm. but calligraphy. So yes, um, art, and then. 
And then literature, obviously, mm-hmm. primarily, you're looking at Rumi's writing, the Masnavi, and I want to we'll get back to that in a moment, focus on that. But also dance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so amazing. You think of the heart of Islamic civilization, these very serious Murid's disciples, but they were studying dance. And you can say dance therapy or spiritual dance. And when I was in Konya, I said, well, I want to learn to whirl. I've always wanted to learn. And I said, well, you know, so I'm just curious about learning to whirl. And they were like, well, it would, it's going to take you about six or nine months if you really want to learn it. So I said, okay, wow. I thought it might be just quite simple. You just twirl around, but no, there's a depth. And then they explained the symbolism to me, which was so profound. So much amazing symbolism of the Sama. But, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's in many ways a, a, a beautiful, spiritual... I mean, and, and it's like through the arts, the sacred arts, you know, you learn to reach the fullness of your humanity. And these centers were all over the Muslim world at the time, all over. Mm-hmm. And someone said, I forget, I was listening to a talk by some academic, but he said, basically, you have to think about it, that the Mevlevi order was an entire spiritual civilization within the broader civilization of Islam that was based around a poem, the Mesnevi which of course is a commentary on the Quran and the, the Islamic civilization is based around the Quran, of course, but within that there's a specific manifestation. And as a poet, I was so moved, he said, because that's never happened in the history of human civilization. You had a spiritual civilization like that based around a poem. And then it said there's these individuals who mastered the Masnavi and they would study there in that kind of mother center and then go out all over. And the, the spiritual tarbiyah, or transformation, the the discipleship, your levels on the path were based around this poem. And you were taught different levels when you were ready for different levels of the poem. So the poem itself has all these levels of meaning. And I was just, I mean, as a poet, but I just think as anyone, like, that is so amazing. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of reflections, but you're someone who spent... (laughs) years and years in the mess, never yourself, and translating and all that stuff. So maybe you could say a bit about that. Mm-hmm. In a way, this is what I was saying before when I said that the creativity and beauty of Rumi um, that has unfolded from this original revelation um, becomes um, a way of deepening and knowing that revelation on ever deeper levels. Um, And the Mevlevi tradition gave birth to a civilization, both to the classical music of the Ottoman world and to uh, the high points of its literature, even after Rumi. So it's the spirituality of Tasawuf is civilization building. It happened with Rumi for the Ottoman world. It happened with uh, Sheikh Nizamuddin in India. And um, Nizamuddin and um, Amir Khosrow 
mm. also created a civilization mm. in India. This is the power of that and revival of that original impulse that came with the Quran. So it legitimizes artistic expression. And now we have examples of artistic expression that is not just, uh, shall we say, uh, humanistic the way Shakespeare is, but it's humanism plus. It's profoundly focused on the human situation. And that's why he can spread so widely today and, and what be appreciated by so many different people on so many different levels. Uh, but it's humanism plus in the sense that our highest purpose as human beings is realized through the transformation of the self, through successive levels of consciousness and human development of will and creativity, etc. And <clears throat> um, it's a dynamic spirituality of transformation. And why shouldn't be beauty and great literature be, be a part of it? If Allah is the great creator, why shouldn't Islam be utterly creative? Uh, in the beginning, Islam liberated imagination. When people were stunned by the revelation. They were awed by it because it opened up their imagination in a positive, spiritual way, in a spiritually objective way. Not, not imagination in the sense of fantasy, but in the sense of that faculty of the human being that can grasp the divine. And unfortunately, things sometimes invert upon themselves. To what extent ha has Islam been represented today more as a matrix that oppresses the imagination rather than one that liberates it. This is why Islam needs its Rumis and other great poets to show that um, this is a powerful creative force. And to talk about the divine, to express the divine uh, in the most beautiful, creative, artistic, and artistic ways. To begin to do justice to the divine, rather than reducing the divine to black and white morality, or, or worse yet, cliches uh, and sentimental notions lack, you know, uh, the authenticity of the true heart of the human being. Sufism is a profound form of humanism. And that humanism is very much alive and has been for a long time, especially in Anatolia. Yunus Emre, another beautiful example of that. Uh, there is a, it's, it's intrinsic to Islam as well. You know, the, the Quran says, we have honored the children of Adam. Karamna. Mm -hmm. We have made them noble and we've been generous to humanity. 
created humanity in the most beautiful of proportions. So let's live it. And so, for the Mevlevi way, you know, obviously each Sufi order is based upon the Quran and the example of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and those, you know, the five pillars and things of that nature, but each order has its particulars as far as particular practices which are central to it. Um, Mm. So I'm curious about the Mevlevi because obviously everyone knows the Mevlevi as the whirling dervishes. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Konya this time, I was able to sit with uh, some Mevlevi sheikhs and and disciples, and they gave me some of the symbolism of the Sama. So maybe you could say a bit about the Sama, but beyond that, what else? What are the other aspects? Like what is what is what are the daily practices or the, the emphasis emphasis um, of the order? This leads us to something very, very important. The Methlethi path, yes, it has its disciplines, its customs, uh, its training. We could say a lot about that, but before I say anything about that, I want to say that the Methlevi way, the way of Rumi, doesn't depend primarily on any spiritual technology or any what might be called uh, yeah, esoteric technologies. Not even the beautiful esoteric uh, meanings of the divine names, that we use the divine names. I don't want to be misunderstood here. The, the essential Mevlevi zikr is simply Allah, Allah, Allah. Based on the ayat that says, is not Allah sufficient for you? And within the simple name of Allah are all the divine names. Yes, we can study all the divine names, but whereas some orders focus on prescribing, with, on, focus on the divine names as prescriptions, to be handed out, and that becomes a main focus of their teaching and practice. In the Mevlevi way, the most important element is divine love. It's a way of ashk that sort of jumps ahead, so jumps over all this other stuff, and makes that central. Of course, there is a knowledge of love, Love without knowledge can be destructive, or it can be sentimental. Uh, The knowledge of love is necessary because without that knowledge, we don't truly know what deserves our love. So the whole of the Mesnevi can be viewed as an encyclopedia of the knowledge of love, um, in order that our love may be safeguarded and matured with knowledge. But this ashk is always central. And if I had to uh, offer a criteria for authentic spiritual development, if somebody were to ask me, how can I tell whether a spiritual tradition uh, or particular group is truly spiritual. The first thing I would say is, are they growing 
in their capacity for love, unselfish love. Um, no development of the intellect alone necessarily crosses the threshold into the domain of love. In fact, knowledge alone without love is hazardous uh, because it is easily appropriated by the ego and if it leads to arrogance it's leading in exactly the wrong direction. So this is the most important thing. But the Mevlevis also have some extraordinary uh, peculiarities. I mean, one of them is the language they use, how careful they are with how they express things. Um, they say, for instance, uh, you know, there used to be somebody whose job it was to tend the candles and the lamps. And everything was expressed with a very particular language. You would never say, uh, Ahmed John put out the candle. You would say, Ahmed John put the candle to rest. Uh, or when it was time to wake up, up in the morning, somebody would go around through the dervish lodge to the various cells and would gently at the door of the dervish say, Aga be awake. Or uh, if you were offered food and you, you didn't want to eat anymore, you would say very respectfully, thank you, I am already rich with it. Enriched, rich. Mm. Um, or if you lost something, like you lost your iPhone, <laughs> um, you, the way you would speak of it, you would say, my iPhone has gone to the unseen. <laughs> So they use language to express things with the utmost beauty and respect. Uh, respect even for inanimate things was part of the teaching. Respect for the carpet you walk on. Respect for the uh, tea glass you drink out of. Mevlevi will actually kiss the glass before sipping. I love the, the handshakes of the Mevlevi. You shake the hands and then you mutually bring the hands up and you each kiss the hand. Yes. As, I mean, what is more beautiful than that? You know, in many orders, it's a sh- you know everyone bows and kisses the sheikh's hand, which of course is great as a form of respect. But if you go down to kiss someone's hand in the Mevlevi order, they'll bring your hand up and kiss yours at the same time. Yes. It's so beautiful. Yes, it's mutual That's, humility and love. There's something very important here that the world has not grasped. And it's what was modeled between Rumi and Shamsuddin, who was his awakener, let's say. Um, they modeled something for us. Um, maybe Shams was pure Jalal, you know, magnificent divine power, and Rumi was infinite beauty and refinement and articulateness but they both needed each other Shem said I was like a stagnant pool till I met Rumi he got me flowing 
So something happened between them, um, between the Jalal of Shams and the Jamal of Rumi. But in that relationship, they were equals. And they modeled a process of transformation uh, that can lift human beings if we grasp what it is, which is that heart-to-heart, eye-to-eye, soul-to-soul relationship of utter respect and affection. So in the Mevlevi tradition, the sheikh is not the Baba and the Marids, the children. The sheikh is the brother to the Marid. Or the Marid may be a sister, brother or sister. So there is a kind of equality that is built into the relationship even though there is extraordinary respect and, as I said, spiritual courtesy that, once again, optimizes the mohabbat, the affection uh, in the relationship and makes so many things possible and allows energy to rise and be refined. But my teachers were the humblest people that I knew. They were servants. So Lamandetti said, I'm just a dog on Mevlon, guarding Mevlana's threshold. Um, Shafiq John Effendi, who <clears throat> we had the honor of having him live with us in California for a month, his first visit outside of Turkey, and he was maybe 92 years old. We asked him if he would lead us uh, in prayer at a retreat just out of respect next morning at Fajr he was there dressed in a three piece suit ready to lead us in Fajr prayer at the age of 92 mm. the full prostration mm. uh, but the humblest man you would ever find he would always say when we would visit him on an island near, near Istanbul uh, you know I'm just so honored that people come and visit me. So that's the beauty of that transformation, the beauty of the soul that can only happen. It's a transformation that can only happen with love. Beautiful. I've often thought, um, you know, one of the interesting points is that Rumi, obviously, and we've touched on this whole conversation, is an ocean of love and he's associated with a kind of ecstatic love and mercy and compassion and a joy and a playfulness. There's a great playfulness in Rumi that is so refreshing. And you even mentioned a bit, you know, kind of even a kind of naughty, a naughtiness, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's funny that Nicholson has a good old-fashioned British schoolboy. Like he was, he translated the kind of naughty bits into Latin yeah. as opposed to English. He was kind of embarrassed by them or something. But... It's easy to forget that all that beauty and all that joy and all that love and all that playfulness, that it was actually sparked by pain. It was actually sparked by separation and suffering, a true yes. suffering of the separation from his master, the disappearance of Shamsuddin. And I don't know if maybe you could, I'm sure you've reflected on this. And what is it, you know, as human beings, we tend to try to, avoid discomfort and avoid suffering and avoid 
feelings of pain, but of course we can never, because everyone we love will have to leave us or we'll have to leave them. I mean, this is the abode of separation, and every joining together means a separation must come in this world. And so what is the spiritual significance of suffering, and what's the secret that, that that suffering can lead to such beauty and such joy and such love? On the Sufi path, we're not attempting to escape suffering. Suffering has its place. We don't seek it. And there is a kind of suffering that is useless. There's a false suffering. Self-pity, for instance, is not a useful form of suffering. Uh, Feeling jealous is not a useful form of suffering. Being resentful is not a useful form of suffering. But there is a suffering in life that is inevitable. There is real grief that comes. And, um, and true, true sorrow. All of this is transformed in the context of divine mercy, under the light of divine mercy. Knowing that everything that happens is part of a program uh, tailored to your individual needs. Everything is purposeful. Everything serves the purpose of awakening and maturing the soul. If it's greeted with conscious awareness, uh, with patience, and the Quran emphasizes this and says it very clearly, patience is, you might say, the fundamental spiritual virtue. So there is this divine ecology of which suffering is a part. It's not the whole story. We don't need to go looking for it, and we don't need to uh, be cruel to ourselves. Um, In fact, the prophet, peace be upon him, said, make it easy. Damn anyone who makes this religion difficult for others. Mm -hmm. Um, But when inevitable suffering comes and the legitimate grief and pain of life, we accept it. Rida, or reza, Mm -hmm. the acceptance. The reason why Mevlevi's had a thousand and one day training is that a thousand and one days, a thousand and one is the abjad of rida, of acceptance. And the spiritual path was described as a whole bazaar of acceptances. Every day there's something given to us that we have to say thank you for. Um, of course, Rumi ha- underwent this loss of a spiritual friend who was, how shall I say it, Shems gave to Rumi an experience of God that he had in no other way. And for a while he was dependent on Shams for that experience. Mm -hmm. So of course Mm -hmm. it had to be taken away. And he had to find out that that, what he found in Shams he could find in himself. Mm 
And it was like, it seems like Shams was saying in his disappearance, of course there's many debates on stories about that disappearance, but it was as if he was saying, now I've taught you everything. And the only final lesson I can teach you can only be learned in my absence. Yes. Everything we're looking for is to be found within our own being. That's the journey. In that sense, God must love individuality because he created so many individuals. And the idea that fana, spiritual annihilation, is the um, death or obliteration or annihilation of individuality is a misunderstanding. Fana is being yourself and yet seeing yourself sourced in the divine. Seeing your, your best qualities, seeing all your qualities, seeing everything, including your very self, as being sourced in the divine. But that doesn't make for an abstract personality. Uh, especially in Sufism. The mature enlightenment of Sufism is a very individualized enlightenment, a very personalized enlightenment, a very grounded, integrated enlightenment. Um, and I think that's the quintessential character of Tasuv. It is an extraordinarily integrated spirituality where that connects heaven and earth. It connects the divine and the human, the infinite and the finite. Thank you. Maybe we could just close with, a, if you had any reflections. I mean, we are living in the present moment, alhamdulillah, and like any present moment, it presents its own unique set of circumstances. And we are I'm, I'm Westerners, Americans, we're here in Louisville. And anytime you have a tradition there's kind of this, uh, you could say, tension between tradition and transformation, maintaining the authentic tradition and adapting it so that it's most effective in a very set of different circumstances, especially when it enters into a different culture, a different civilization. And just a different time. I mean, even, even Western American culture is changing so fast yes. that it's not like you're adapting it to it to a static civilization. And um, I recently read a book in which you were featured called uh, Sufism and Living Sufism in North America Between Tradition and Transformation with Rory Dixon. And I had him on the podcast as well. But, you know, he explored these ideas of tradition and transformation and how different Sufi teachers across North America are, are doing that. But 
I just thought if you had any kind of closing remarks just about the present moment, I don't want to bring up our president-elect by name because I don't want to summon that energy, but no, we're living in a very strange and unique and beautiful but uh, almost uh, concerning time as well and just the ecological and then this culture. I mean, Islam is a a civilization, upheavals that are happening in the heart of the Muslim world and then in the West and the, the... move away from spirituality, but then the interest in spirituality itself, but not religion, there's just so much transformation. And I know you're someone who's lived within those questions a lot. And so perhaps you have some closing reflections on that. I think the question you're asking has to do with how can Islam and Tasawwuf be adapted to our current level of cultural development uh, without losing its perennial values, without losing its haq, its truth. Too much concern for form will impede that response to our current level of cultural development. Is Islam a spirituality adequate for the times, or is it a throwback? I believe it is a spirituality adequate to the time, Um, but I also believe that Islam as it's understood, perhaps by a majority of of people in the world today, is suffering from much deferred maintenance. The structure of Islam is suffering from deferred maintenance. There's a lot of work we have to do. A re-examination of Sharia, of Hadith, uh, an adaptation to human rights, gender rights, uh, human creativity, human freedom, And we need a holistic Islam. We need, uh, yes, we need to reconceive Islam. And I bring together these two words, holistic and Islam. And what I mean is, in Arabic, al-Islam as-Salim. Holistic, the Islam that is whole. The Islam that recognizes different levels of consciousness and the principle of transformation. And I think this will solve, uh, will allow us to make Islam as a uh, spirituality appropriate to our times and this level of cultural development. In March of 2017, uh, a book of mine will be published called Holistic Islam. It's a modest attempt. Um, I could spend the rest of my life working on this book, but there isn't time. And there's such a need for a, what I'll call a sane and merciful interpretation of Islam. So many people are looking for this and not easily finding it. Um, so I definitely believe that uh, if we are true to the revelation, it can guide us according to its axiomatic principles. Uh, to 
satisfy our most our deepest human needs and to keep us and to be a spiritual compass uh, for humanity at this time in so many ways, even economically. I mean, Quranic economics is the answer. If we could understand the principles, uh, it would free us from the debt slavery, which is um, pro- probably the single greatest evil in the world today. So, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, mm-hmm. and now we're just starting a whole new subject, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for a further uh, yeah. conversation. This will have to be part one. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.